I don't want to like sugarcoat it or make it into something that it's not. Like failure is failure and it's awesome. And it's part of why we do things that are difficult. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Welcome to episode numero uno. I'm so psyched. Today we're chalking up for a chat with Emily Harrington. Emily is a quadruple threat, y'all. She's got massive accomplishments from big walls to sport to comp to alpine. She's one of only five humans and the first woman to free El Cap in a day via the Golden Gate route. That's over 3,000 feet and 40 pitches of El Cap granite in a day. Emily's also red-pointed 514B. She's a five-time U.S. sport climbing champion. And she's summited Mount Everest. Why not? You guys, there's just so much that we can learn from her struggles and her breakthroughs. And she's 100% real with all of it in this interview. I'm so psyched to share that we are supported by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Struggle Climbing Show. Y'all, I've been using Fizzy Vantage for a year now, and this stuff is just truly the best of the best if you want to level up your training and performance, and of course you do. Does it work? Well, in the past year, I pushed my personal sport grade from 11B to 12C. It's a pretty big jump, and heck yeah, I credit Fizzy Vantage in helping me to get there. I use their revolutionary supercharged collagen every day to keep my fingers strong and healthy. I just mix it in with my tea in the morning. Tastes awesome. And I also love Endurex, which helps to support my endurance on those long, pumpy roots at the red that I love so much. This stuff just works. Swing on over to fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their eight innovative products to support your training and your performance. Hit the link in the show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order. Just try it, you guys. I'm telling you, I cannot say enough about Fizzy Vantage. It is truly the best. I'm really proud to say that the Struggle Climbing Show is carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. Swing on over to honoldfoundation.org and consider setting up a monthly donation, like I did. It feels good. Just offset your carbon footprint, just like that. And while you're there, you can learn about the awesome projects they're supporting, such as powering the mission of our friends over at Memphis Rocks, a nonprofit climbing community center in Soulsville, Tennessee. Now, just a quick note, we do touch on eating disorders for a little bit in the nutrition section with Emily. So if that's something that's challenging for you, then you can feel free to just skip right past that into the next chapter. Lastly, y'all, after my chat with Emily, stick around for a couple minutes to learn how you can score some swag from the show. All right, let's get ready to tie in for this fantastic chat with Emily Harrington. Emily Harrington, welcome to the show. It's awesome to see you. Thank you for having me. I'm really psyched. Okay, so let's dive in. I'd love to hear what struggle means to you through the lens of climbing. I mean, I would say struggle is kind of a huge part of the definition of climbing. I don't think climbing would exist or I don't think people would do it if there wasn't struggle involved. It's supposed to be hard. There's supposed to be failure. It's a sport where you're fighting gravity. So it's essentially defined by struggle. I like to be in a phase of struggle, I think. For me, that's when I'm most comfortable in a way, is when I have these really audacious things that I'm trying and these big goals. And 
gives me something to focus on. It gives me somewhat of a purpose. And I think that's always what climbing has done for me is given me a, a purpose and given me hard things to to focus on and big goals. Well, yeah, you're certainly no stranger to taking on big goals, um, whether we're talking about El Cap in a day on Golden Gate or Everest or, you know, any of the hard sport projects that you're doing. So let's dive in. Let's get nerdy here. I want to talk about training. Where have you struggled in your training, Emily? I think for me, I struggle with training in terms of I never feel like I'm progressing when I'm training. Hmm. It's like the progression is so incremental or sometimes non-existent or sometimes backwards day to day that it's sometimes really hard to stay motivated. I'm a firm believer in like training what you're bad at, like training your weaknesses. So I spend a lot of time bouldering. I spend a lot of time working on power because endurance for me tends to come pretty quickly and fairly easily. And so the majority of my time is spent bouldering on the moonboard or hangboarding or campusing or doing things that where I'm trying to get stronger. And a lot of times when I'm in a training cycle, it just doesn't feel like I'm getting any stronger. I just think at my level and for as long as I've been doing this, that the incremental increases in strength and performance are really hard to see on the, in the day to day. How is it when you get back out on a project after you've been training inside for a while? So in the gym, a lot of times I feel like I'm just always the same. Whether I've taken a month and a half off or I've been training nonstop, like I just feel basically the same. And then I go outside after a cycle of training and after some rest period and all of that. And I tend to perform a lot better. Like last year was my best year of climbing probably ever. And my training still felt hard and like a struggle, but it worked for me. So can you, let's dive in a little bit to, to what your training looks like as, as you're training up, because you said power is more of a weakness. Can you break down like kind of an overview of what a, a power training week would look like? Yeah. Well, first of all, I tend to rest more when I'm training power. So I take more rest days. I don't climb five days a week or six days a week or anything like that. And I go into the gym and I warm up really well. And then I usually climb on the kilter board or the moon board, or we actually have a grasshopper wall. And I do... Uh, a series of like difficult boulders I'll try just project a bunch of boulder problems and take a lot of rest and try to do hard moves and try really hard summon that that bouldering try hard that's sometimes difficult for me to tap into and then sometimes I'll finish with doing like more problems at a lower level but I would even still consider that more like power endurance like mm -hmm. trying to do a bunch of problems at a grade that's like pretty manageable at first, but then gets harder. And then a lot of times recently I've been lifting weights at the end, but just more like opposition, like bench press and like shoulder exercises, like eyes, Y's and T's and stuff like that. And then core. And since I've been lifting weights, I've been doing it for about a year now. I just feel like I used to have little shoulder nags and things that felt loose or unstable. And I've just felt far more stable and healthy. So try to do that to avoid how, injury. How many days a week are you on the board doing those like limit boulder problems? Like recently, I would say probably like three days a week. So with at least one full rest day in between. Yeah, for sure. And then if I'm climbing two days in a row, I'll go back and I'll usually, I'll either maybe boulder on just like those set boulder problems. And I like the, um, also bad at these, but I like the comp style boulders, like the weird jumpy parkour boulder problems and the slabs and stuff like that. So if I'm tired from the day before, I'll usually go and like work on those techniques because I'm not that good at it. 
And I think in some ways it it does benefit me as a climber, and it's really fun. Well, that's interesting. I, I don't often hear that from from climbers who especially focus on outdoor climbing, that they're into that kind of comp style. Usually, um, they actively avoid it. So how is that for you? How do you do with that kind of style? Yeah, I'm terrible at it, but I like it. I think like on, on LCAP in particular, you find like sections that are weird. The climbing is weird. Like on Golden Gate, the, the down climb is super reachy and insecure and balancey and almost like a it reminds me a little bit of a bizarre indoor boulder problem that would be in like a comp right um and especially for me like there's sections of granite especially on cap that are super reachy and you have to be creative to get around it and i think that that style of bouldering is super creative and it's fun and it's something i'm not very good at because i didn't grow up doing it and i just i find it interesting and cool is it discouraging to you at all when you're just so strong and so elite in a certain style or actually styles of climbing from big wall to really hard sport routes? You've red pointed up to 14B. When you get on a different style like this, you say you're really bad at it. How, how does that feel? Yeah, of course. It's definitely discouraging. But I think I'm used to it at this point. Like I'm used to not being that great of a gym climber. I used to be really good when the style was different. And back in the days when that's all I did. And now, like, I haven't been a great gym climber in over a decade, I feel like. (laughs) And so I'm just used to it. I'm used to, like, getting burned off by, like, the junior team kids. I'm used to just, like, not feeling that strong there. I'm used to my days of, of feeling strong at the gym being, like, entirely mediocre for most other professional climbers who might specialize in bouldering or whatever that may be. And also I went through a phase of breaking into to trad climbing and big wall free climbing and also being really bad at that. So I think I've just gotten really good at being bad at things and knowing that that it doesn't necessarily define me as a climber because I know what I'm actually I also know what I'm good at. And I know that working on the things that I'm bad at will make me better at the things that I'm good at. Yeah, I love that. You know, train your weaknesses, project to your strengths and um, just have a whole bunch of fun while you're at it. That's great. All right, let's shift gears now here, Emily, and let's talk about nutrition for a little bit. And I'd specifically like to talk about um, how you've been very public about struggling with disordered eating uh, when you were younger, and if that's something that you're willing to talk about here. Yeah, yeah, happy to talk about it. I did struggle with it for a while, probably in my late teens, early 20s. And I mean, the reasons are obvious, right? Being lighter is hugely beneficial in the short term for climbing. And the results are really fast. You can feel them almost immediately. And it's easy to go down that path of just continuing to behave that way because it you have a lot of positive reinforcement. But the thing that I think a lot of climbers learn through this, through these experiences is that it's really not sustainable. Hmm. And it either results in injury or it results in just burnout from climbing. It just doesn't last long term. And that's what happened to me. Like it just, climbing was no longer fun. I was exhausted the whole time. I was tired. I couldn't find the motivation that I used to have. It was just every day was a struggle and not in a good way. It was just hard to even want to go climbing and it wasn't fun. And so that was a really hard, it was really hard for me to get over that and grow out of it. I I would say it took many years. And now I feel like I've found like the right approach which is just more balanced and obviously I think I'm more mature as well. Was this during your comp days? Yeah. 
it was during the competition days when I was doing really well and starting to climb outside, um, like starting to climb hard routes outside. Like my first 514, I was definitely like in a place where I wasn't very healthy. Mm-hmm. And it took many years for me to prove to myself that I could still be that athlete and still perform at that level, but be healthier. So were there people in your life that helped you to recognize that you were on an unhealthy path or, or, or how did you start to get through that phase? For me, it was hard because I felt really alone. I didn't really have that many people to look up to who had done it. Like the generation before me, they all did weird things with eating in order to perform well. And that's Mm -hmm. what I saw. That's what I was exposed to from a really young age. I think one thing that really helped me was transitioning to other styles of climbing, being exposed to things outside of just like competitions and pushing my grades. I started learning how to ice climb. I went to Nepal and went to the Himalaya and saw the big mountains and started to experience altitude and climbed Everest when I was 25 and realized that you can't, you literally can't climb a mountain if you don't feel yourself properly. So I think being exposed to those different disciplines and exposed to the adventure side of climbing, it gave it a slightly different meaning to me. And it helped me get through that phase. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for just opening up. I, I think it's something that, unfortunately, a lot of climbers wrestle with at, at some point in time in their career, though it seems to be getting a little bit better. And I think because people like yourself are speaking out. So thank you. And now you have, obviously, a, a much healthier relationship with diet, with nutrition. How do you fuel yourself now? What, what does that look like? I would say that my diet is, like, really normal. Uh, I eat healthy we eat like real food we eat real meals and i hate more than anything like bonking when i'm out doing something <laughs> like i think it's the worst feeling ever just feeling hungry and low energy and not being able to think clearly or perform well so yeah we eat everything but i try to eat healthy and i love making food and sharing food and eating meals. I think it's such a huge part of the enjoyment of life. And I think it's really good for your mental health. I just can't focus too intensely on it or worry about it too much because I think it just gets into my head and it messes with me. So I try to just not worry about it. Like I don't count calories or literally I don't do anything super specific except try to eat a balanced overall like healthy diet. It's so interesting to hear because I do think it's common for climbers and, and certainly elite climbers to really pay attention to their caloric intake and their protein and that kind of thing. Was that not something that you focus on at all? Are you are you really just focused more on making wholesome meals? I feel like I, I know myself well now. I know like in general what to eat and how much to eat. And I think that worrying about the, the minute details only causes stress. Hmm. Yeah. So I just, I really don't worry about it that much. If I'm going on a trip and there's not going to be vegetables or something, then I might bring like that athletic green stuff or some protein powder, whatever. But I don't count anything. I don't worry about anything. I'm just like normal. (laughs) Well, that's a refreshing perspective. I like that. Just a follow-up question on that. When you're doing these massive in-a-day pushes or, or when you're out on a sieging a big wall, how do you keep from bonking? Yeah. So that one's interesting because people like Alex and Jordan actually have have told me like, you have to bring real food up there, bring a sandwich or bring a burrito or whatever. And I actually brought a burrito on the day I climbed Golden Gate in a day and I never ate it because 
I just get like too, I have too many nerves, I think. So I just try to fuel about every hour or every two pitches or something like that. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's more like snacking. And it's literally anything that I can keep down, anything that tastes halfway good, anything that like I'm craving is what I'll have. I'll have like gummy bears or Cheetos or like nuts or whatever, but just like a little bit at a time. I don't, I never ate like a full meal up there. I think of it more like a, if you've ever done like an ultra marathon or something, like ultra runners don't eat healthy on the day of a race. They just eat what they can to like keep them going. Right. Because you just want to avoid bonking. And like that day, it doesn't matter that you eat Cheetos. It doesn't matter that you eat candy. Like you're going to burn it off in like 30 minutes anyway. So all that matters is that you're constantly putting something into your body and whatever you can handle is what you should have. Yeah, that's exactly. cool. I love this mental image of Jordan heading up Golden Gate after you and seeing like these orange Cheeto dusted tick marks <laughs> from the Cheeto dust on your fingers. <laughs> I'll have to ask him about that. All right, Emily, let's talk about tactics now and technique and any areas where you may have struggled with that. And and specifically, I think let's look at it through the lens of Golden Gate in a day, if that's all right. Yeah, um, I guess in particular with Golden Gate, there were so many different styles of climbing hmm. on that route. You have to have everything. You have to have bouldering. You have to be able to boulder. You have to be able to slab climb. You have to be able to off with climb. You have to be able to climb mostly 510 really well. And I would say that was probably my biggest struggle that I came to realize was that I wasn't actually that good at, at climbing thousands of feet of 5.9 and 5.10 quickly hmm. and efficiently without, without taxing myself for the harder climbing, which inevitably on El Cap is the last few hundred feet or the last thousand feet. Oh, yeah. You've got the Golden Desert and the A5 Traverse, which are the 513 stopper pitches, but they're like basically the last couple pitches that you do on the whole route. So this is interesting. So you're looking to find more efficiency in getting up to those most challenging pitches rather than just focusing on those. So how did you recognize that? I, I think I recognized it because that doing it, climbing Golden Gate in a day versus climbing Gold, Golden Gate over multiple days, just I started realizing how different of a an objective that was. If you're only climbing five pitches a day, those 513 pitches aren't actually that difficult. And anybody, if you if those pitches were on the off the ground, it, it they're pretty reasonable, hmm. honestly. And they're not that difficult. But the the struggle comes when you have to climb 2000 feet of 59 and 510 and a little bit of 511 to get up to that point. And it doesn't really sound like much when you're a 514 climber. It's like, oh, well, I can climb 510 all day. It's actually, you probably can't. It's it's more physical than you think it is. And for me, it was just something that I just started realizing over time, I think, was that I was inefficient. And it would, like took people like Alex pointing it out. Climbing El Cap is a lot of moderate climbing. And a lot of people don't realize, but they're not that good at it. Especially if you're a 514 climber, it's hard to accept that you're not actually that good at climbing 510. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Um, but there's so many pitches of it. So is it cumulatively, if you can find efficiencies on every single one of those more moderate to easy pitches... By the time you get up to, you know, 2,200 feet up when you're getting into the Golden Desert and that, you're saying you've basically conserved that extra 20% that you need to then power through? Yep, exactly. Exactly. It's cumulatively, it just depletes your reserves if you're 
not relaxed, if you're moving too slow, you know, the, the climbing's not, um, it's not like pedestrian. It's slippery and it's insecure a lot of places. You took a big fall off the, the, the free blast, right? Yeah, it's heads up. It's, you have to be engaged and paying attention. And I don't know, like the Red River Gorge, for example, the five, for me, like maybe it's because I grew up sport climbing, but like 5'9 and 5'10, even 5'11 at the Red River Gorge, it's, you're just paddling up it. it. It just doesn't feel as engaging in a lot of ways as climbing on El Cap. It's, yeah, it's not insecure. Style. If you're climbing slab 5'10, it could, be, it's, it could still yeah. be insecure, right? Like you could pop. Yeah, totally. If you're not paying attention. So I think just practicing being in that space was really mm -hmm. important for me and also giving it the respect that it deserves. It's hard, I think, especially for climbers who've never been on El Cap, it's hard. It's easy to just brush it off and be like, oh, well, like it's mostly 5'10. So I climbed 5'12 in the gym. I actually heard someone say that to me at the base of the free blast. And um, <laughs> I was like, OK, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> And you ultimately just blew through the bottom half or, or two thirds of that climb. And Alex Honnold was blaming you for um, that part of the day. And then your husband, Adrian, came in to belay you from that point to the top. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious tactically what the strategy was behind that. Yeah, there are multiple reasons, actually. It's crucial to have a good belayer for your day on trying to free El Cap in a day because, you know, it's not just like a belay on your sport climbing project where they just stand on the ground. Like they have to be moving up the wall with you. And so they have to be fast and they have to be efficient and they have to be competent. And Alex has kind of him and Tommy essentially have developed like the fastest, most effective ways of moving on El Cap. And so for the moderate climbing, when you can both move fairly quickly, it was advantageous to have someone like Alex belay me. And so we were able to simul climb, which is something that you can only do with two very competent people. We were able to simul climb the free blast in, I think, two hours the time that I sent. We've done it. We did it together before in an hour and a half, which I realized was like maybe too fast for me, like maybe pushing it too much, my comfort level because of the accident I had. But that saves so much time. Mm -hmm. It's just a massive amount of time that you save. And then for me, I think it was helpful to have Adrian switch and be my partner because the climbing is much slower. It's uh, a lot harder. I'm just pitching it out. It's more similar to sport climbing, like your partner's just belaying you and then they're jumaring and cleaning the pitch. So Adrian was completely capable of, of belaying that, but then emotionally he was also a better partner for me in that moment. You know, we were going to go into the second night of climbing. It was going to be difficult. I was going to be struggling a lot emotionally and he's my husband. So... Yeah. It's just a little bit better. In addition, like we, I, I think I came up with this idea with Alex because I had, he supported me on all of my attempts. And I think for him doing 21 hours with somebody on LCAP, it's, it's a lot to ask. I think he would do it. But when I came up with this idea of, oh, Adrian should come down from the top and then he could support me for the, the really difficult part where it gets long. And I think the wheels in his brain were turning. He's like, oh yeah, I could just go down and have dinner with Sonny and that would be great. Right. So I think there were multiple reasons to do it that way. And then I think he ended up supporting Jordan as well on the free blast on, during his attempt because it's just so easy for Alex to do that part. And it's so beneficial for the other climber. And then he can get out of there and not have to have these like epic long belay sessions on LCAP. Yeah, that's a win-win for sure. That's great. So anybody out there who's wanting to make a real go 
at Freerider or Golden Gate in a day. Just have Alex support you through the free blast that he has completely dialed, and uh, that'll be helpful. It is really valuable. <laughs> okay, last last question on tactics here before we shift gears, and that's about um, how you were getting advice. You you had mentioned to me that when you were working on Golden Gate in a day, you were getting a lot of advice from guys that that wasn't maybe particularly applicable to you as a female climber. And so I'd just like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I was getting a lot of advice on how to do things and which strategies to use. And I will say some of it was obviously very beneficial, but there were certain things that didn't really translate for me as like a small woman trying to free climb on El Cap. And one like really good example is the monster off with. That pitch is 100 feet of off with climbing where you're kind of wedging half your body and trying to ascend. And for so many years, I just thought I was really bad at it. And I, I don't think I'm the best at it, but I thought I was like the worst climber, the worst off with climber who had ever free climbed El Cap was like my perspective <laughs> of myself. And I was, I was confirmed by people. They were like, oh, you took two and a half hours. Yeah, that's really hmm. slow. If you want to free climb El Cap in a day, you have to get faster. You have to do this. You have to do that. And a lot of the tactics and the techniques that were being told to me just didn't translate for me. Like every guy I talked to was like, you just have to heel toe and move up the wall and that's how you do it. And you shouldn't even need a number six, like all this hmm. stuff. Like it's so secure, like all this stuff. And it just didn't feel ever secure for me. My feet, ultimately, I, it came down to the fact that my feet were just too small to like span the off width. So I was completely unable to heel toe hook and I was completely unable to use that beta because my feet were too small. But instead of finding an entirely different technique, I just started thinking about what they were doing and what I was doing and how it was different. And it ultimately came down to foot size. Mm. So in the end, what I did was I made my foot bigger by putting Alex's shoe over my shoe. And then I was able to heel toe hook just like they were doing. But it took a little bit of like outside the box creativity in order to get to that realization. First of all, that's that's fantastic that you put shoes on over shoes and then was able to rock climb <laughs> that way. But what a creative solution. So did it end up going that much more efficiently or that much quicker once you had figured out that little trick beta? Yes, I was two and a half hours was like my longest time. And that was the first time I climbed the Golden Gate back in 2015. And then I started getting it down to like, you know, an hour or so. But when I did the shoe trick, it was 35 minutes and it was far less energy. Wow. That has just got to be a first. I love it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about mental game now, Emily. And, and you're just such a high performing climber across so many disciplines. There aren't many climbers out there that that have that kind of toolkit like you do. Maybe Tommy and, and Lynn, but you know, from alpine to sport to big wall to comp, you seem to be able to do it all pretty well. And I'm curious if the mental game aspect, um, how that plays into things and if, if you've struggled in that area. I think that's one of the biggest struggles that I and probably many climbers have is the mental game, mm -hmm. that ability to approach an objective, believe that you can do it, but not focus too much on the outcome be accepting of the failures along the way and also be accepting of maybe never being successful and dealing with things like fear and self-doubt. All of that is like the, the meat of a process when it comes to having an objective. I think for me, it's far less, I struggle far less with the training 
and far less with the physical side of it because the mental side is so it's such a roller coaster, honestly. And I think for me, it's become a space that I'm really comfortable with. Like I'm comfortable with that discomfort in a way. Yeah. Yeah. See, see, okay. There's two, two things here that I'd like to dig into. One is fear. And uh, I think that kind of lives on its own. And I, and I really do want to dig into that because that's something that, that I wrestle with quite a bit, but also you just mentioned this concept of success or not putting too much focus on the outcome in rock climbing. And I think that can be challenging. Yeah. I mean, I think like fear, failure is something that traditional society kind of frowns upon. It's like something we should avoid. Being a failure, failing, all these things. It's something that we're taught to be afraid of. And I think that's a really unrealistic expectation to have on people. I think that failing is really valuable. And I don't even like it when people are like, oh, you didn't fail. Like you learned a lot or like you did this. And it's like, no, I failed. Just say what it is. Just let's just say it. Like it's I don't want to like sugarcoat it or make it into something that it's not like failure is failure. And it's awesome. And it's part of why we do things that are difficult. And the more comfortable and accepting we become of failure, the easier it's going to be for us to try to do things that are hard. And it's also just a very human thing. Everybody fails. Everyone in the whole world fails. And that's great. That's awesome. That's what we should be doing. That's how we progress. That's how we grow. That's how we learn about ourselves. If we're just successful all the time, or if we just say we're successful all the time, I just feel like that's living in this weird fantasy land. Like people aren't sending all over the place. Like we had this joke at the VRG, the Virgin River Gorge, where we spent basically all of last winter when Adrian was trying to climb his hardest route. And it was like, a very unique and special day when someone actually sent something. Most of the time you're there, people are just falling and they're flailing and they're failing. And that's what climbers do. It can be very mental at times, but we are good at it. Yeah. Hell yeah. I love this. Yeah. See, you know, this is, this is what climbing is all about. Like you said, we're, we're going to be failing. If we're, if we're trying hard, we're going to be failing and we've got to be okay with that. And I think it's just so common to get caught in this like Instagram or YouTube spiral where we see the send and we don't think about the hours, days, weeks, months, years that might go into the culmination of that effort. So, so for you specifically, seems like you've got a great perspective on failure, but what's it like for you when you're out there, you're trying really hard and it's not coming together? I mean, it sucks. It's frustrating and it's like heartbreaking in a way. And it causes you to doubt yourself and it causes you to throw little temper tantrums and say things that you don't mean about yourself and feel things that aren't necessarily mm. true. And I, I I, would be lying if I had some miracle remedy to all of that, but I don't. Like, it's just hard. And everyone goes through it. You go to a climbing area and you spend a season there, like, you're going to watch people go through that process over and over again. It's not fun all the time. You're not going to be happy with yourself all the time. You're not going to feel good about yourself all the time. But that's just what it is to be a human. There's no magic bullet to like dealing with failure. It sucks and it's hard. But the benefit of exposing yourself to those things greatly outweigh like the hard parts. Hell yeah. Love it. Love it, Emily. That's great. Okay. One more thing on this because ah, the mental chapter here is always my favorite. There's about a hundred things I want to talk about. 
but we touched on fear. So let's just dig into that for a second here. And I've heard you say that it might have been in your TED talk that fear can give you strength if you give it purpose. Yeah, I think fear is really complicated. I think it's similar to failure in that there's no way to make it go away. You're never going to conquer your fears. They're always going to be there. You just have to work with them and accept them. And that's the first step to being comfortable with it is realizing that it's never going to go away. You know, like like fighting a losing battle of making your fears disappear is the most frustrating thing ever because you feel so alone in that battle. You're like, oh, the, you know, if, if you're afraid of falling, it's like you look around you and you self-select all these other people who are pushing it and trying really hard and taking these huge whippers and you feel bad about yourself because you're afraid and you think you're the only one that's afraid and, and you shouldn't be afraid and all these shoulds and all this stuff. And I think the reality is everyone's afraid. Everyone has their own form of it. And the sooner we accept that, the easier it is to work with it and move through it. And again, there's no easy solution to it except for just taking these tiny little baby steps to push your comfort zone. So if you are afraid of falling, taking time to expose yourself to that fear without completely traumatizing yourself, essentially wanting to quit climbing over it is the, the balance that you have to strike. Okay, so fear of falling is definitely something that I've struggled with in the past. You know, having learned how to climb trad and, and basically being like, don't fall on gear and then moving more into a sport style of climbing out at the Red River Gorge where, you know, if you're trying hard, you should be taking some falls that are safe. So what does that look like? So going out on a day and maybe lead climbing a little bit, but not climbing above your bolt, maybe taking a few falls, maybe pushing yourself a little bit. But if it gets to be too much, then backing off is also okay. And accepting the fact that like failing that day is fine and you're going to go back the next day. And gradually, like the more you expose yourself to it, the easier it will get. And that comfort zone will get pushed a little further and a little further and a little further. Did you ever personally struggle with a fear of falling? For me, I had a fear of falling when I was younger, like a huge fear of falling in the gym. And it didn't go away until I started competing on lead. And then I think what happened is I cared so much about doing well in the competition. Essentially, I had a fear of failure that it completely wiped away that fear of falling. <laughs> and so I was just going for it because I didn't care anymore. <laughs> so maybe the takeaway is to just to replace your fear with another fear and then that first fear will go away. <laughs> um, or maybe it won't. You know, it's it's interesting. You took two really big falls um, where you got significantly injured. I mean, some some pretty scary falls when you were working on Golden Gate. After taking those, what did that do to you on the mental side? How did that impact your mental game? Yeah, it definitely rattled me. And I was definitely afraid, very afraid to go back up there, to climb again, to confront those sections again, to even confront the objective again. But I think for me, it was really easy to logically think my way out of that mm. fear. Because the first, for example, the first fall was essentially my fault. It was totally within my control. I didn't place enough gear. I was moving too fast. I wasn't thinking about the fact that my feet were numb. And I fell 50 feet because I didn't have any gear mm. in. And so I realized, I thought about that and I was like, okay, how can I prevent that next time? It wasn't like rock fall or something out of control right. happened that was out of my, it was completely within my control. So it was like, okay, next time, like I said, Alex and I have climbed the free loss together in an hour and a half. When I sent the route, I climbed it in two hours because I was like, I need to slow down. Mm. I need to place more gear. I want to stop at these certain sections and I want, I, I want to have more protection. And so that's what I did. And so there, for me, there was an a really rational way 
to think about it. Yeah, the rational thought's super important, right? Because there are all kinds of fear. There's there's rational fear um, where you could take a ground fall or hit a ledge or something like that, or you don't want to test a piece of gear. And then there's certainly irrational fears, like, you know, more in my game where I'm climbing at the red and if I'm on an overhung route and it's glue and bolts and I'm 30 feet up and, you know, I'm afraid to to take a fall a few feet past a bolt, then, you know, I should be able to rationalize that away and say, no, this is totally safe. Yeah. And that rationalization is practice, right? Like I did spend time at the Red River Gorge afraid of falling onto glue and bolts and had to figure out how to rationalize that fear and get through it. And so, you know, extrapolating those experiences that were are decades worth of experience and, and then applying it to this like much more extreme situation, um, I was able to do that. And I think, again, no easy solution. It's taken me 25 years to to get to that point to be able to do that. All right, Emily, let's talk about things that you're passionate about now beyond the fight with gravity. And you're working with great organizations like Protect Our Winters and the Yosemite Climbing Association, which I'm excited to talk about. But I also want to hear what it's like for you now being a role model in the climbing world, being a mentor, especially to these girls and young women who are coming up through the ranks. What's that experience been like for you? I mean, it's it feels like quite an honor and also a great responsibility to be a role model because, you know, I remember what it was like when I was younger, looking up to to women like Lynn Hill and crediting her with feeling like climbing was a space for women because of the things that she did. How did you come to meet Lynn when you were a little girl? I'm curious to hear that story. I grew up in Boulder, and uh, which is where Lynn lives. Yeah. And I got to meet her a couple times. Robin Herbisfield was my coach, so that was also super valuable, actually. And yeah, I met Lynn. We actually climbed a route together in Boulder Canyon called Country Club Crack, who was like one of my first trad climbing experiences. No um, way. <laughs> yeah. One of your first trad climbing experiences was with the Lynn Hill. Yeah. Yeah. I just top roped it and belayed her, but it was pretty rad. Oh, that is just so ridiculously cool. So, So then now cut to you being a crusher yourself and a hero in the rock climbing world. And I hear um, some young unknown whippersnapper at the gym named Margot Hayes was looking up to you. So tell me about that. Yeah, I didn't realize that I had impressed Margot. I was mostly impressed by Margot back in the day. I would go to the gym, like gymnastics gym called Cats, where there's also a climbing wall. It's really great for training. And I would go train and I remember seeing this little girl who was a gymnast at the time, just like running around doing flips, like doing all these things. <laughs> and I was just so impressed by her energy and how uh, amazing she was. And then she started climbing. I really had no idea that I had anything to do with anything, but I always just observed her from afar as this like rising star. So I guess I feel really honored to know that. And now she's like a dear friend and it's awesome. And I just think that sports in general are awesome for that. Oh, that is just so rad. You know, I love that about the climbing community as well, because it's just such a supportive group that you can run into your role models at the gym or at the crag. And it's great that you've been able to not only be on the receiving end of uh, mentorship, but also now handing it down. That's just really cool. And now I want to touch um, also on your work with various environmental organizations and causes uh, like Protect Our Winners and Yosemite Climbing Association. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. Obviously, the environment is inextricably tied with climbing and skiing, which is my second passion. So Adrian and I are actually, we're ambassadors for Protect Our Winters. They also have like a, a climb branch as well now. So we're about, we're a part of that. And basically it's to, it's athletes using their voices to raise awareness about climate change and make 
legislative change at that level, Mm. which is really kind of the most important. And so that's why we're part of Protect Our Winners. That's why we believe in it. And also, I believe that just by exposing people to the outdoors, by showing them what it can do for them health-wise, mental health-wise, is what makes people care about it. You're not going to convince someone to care about climate change if they don't go outside, Mm. if they don't see the benefit of it. And so sharing outdoor spaces, making them accessible for people, making them welcoming for people, making them financially available for people is really important. Because if the majority of people don't get to enjoy the outdoors, the majority of people will not want to protect the outdoors. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's hard to protect something that you don't care about. So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And tell me now a little bit about your work with the Yosemite Climbing Association. I just actually, in the last few weeks, joined the board of directors. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. No, it's awesome. It's really fun. What it does is it works to preserve the history of, Yose- of climbing in Yosemite um, and educate people about it. They're trying to have like a permanent home for it, like a museum. They're trying to have a traveling nose exhibit to bring to like schools to teach kids about it, cool. stuff like that. They put on events like the facelift, which works to to clean up the valley, clean up the walls, clean up El Cap, stuff like that. So so you get out there and you scrub the Cheeto dust off the walls. And, yeah, yeah, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you, Emily, so much for making the world a better place and for just sharing your struggles and your breakthroughs today. It was an incredible conversation. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you so much for having me. That was an awesome conversation. What an inspiring and just honest look into Emily's world. I'm I'm just so grateful that she was willing to open up like she did. The climbing community is just the best, isn't it? What did you love about this interview? Hit us up on Instagram and let us know. You can follow Emily at Emily A. Harrington, me at Ryan Devlin Outside, and the show at The Struggle Climbing Show. You know, my personal takeaways from the chat are that the gains in the gym might not seem significant, you know, at the time, but if you stick with it, they're definitely going to show up on the rock. And I think that's important for all of us to keep in mind as we're training. And her perspective on fear, whether it's fear of falling or fear of failure, it is just so next level. I love it. I'm going to listen to that chapter again and again and again until it makes it into my own mental game because she has definitely got that figured out. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. If you guys want to level up your training and performance, check it out. It is just the best. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. You can also find all their awesome products at select gyms in the U.S. Or if you're in Europe, check out the Epic TV online shop. And I'd also like to give a little shout out to the climbers and friends who have helped to make this show possible. Joel Wofford, Emily Holland, Eric Hurst, and Stephen Dimmitt. Thank you guys so much for giving me the help, the support, and the confidence to take the leap with this little idea. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Now, before I go, how about some swag? If you'd like to support the show and the climbers who are making it, you can pop by patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to sign up for the only tier that we have, Send Train. Who wouldn't want to be on the Send Train, right? For seven bucks a month, you'll join the community. Awesome. Thank you so much. And um, you'll also get yourself a limited edition travel mug slash can koozie, which is only available to guests of the show and the patrons who support it. 
Now, if you can't support as a patron right now, it's all good, don't worry about it. How about a free sticker? We're working really hard on this show and getting ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts especially, but anywhere you listen to your podcast is just so incredibly helpful. So leave a quick review, take a snap of it, and post it on Instagram, tagging at The Struggle Climbing Show so we can find you and we will send you a free sticker. Slap it on your Nalgene, your stick clip, your van, or your forehead, or wherever you put stickers so that everyone knows that you love The Struggle and The Struggle loves you. All right, thank you so much. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world.